Well, good morning and welcome. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We're thankful you could join us here today. I'm always encouraged to be gathered with the saints on the Lord's Day. We are commanded by our Lord not to forsake the gathering. And the gathering is an opportunity, uh, really the major opportunity for us to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and to encourage one another. As you know, as you know, we have streamed our church service for the past several years. Even before COVID, we were streaming, and during COVID, we began uh, really doing uh, that more and more. Now, during this past week, Keith and I discussed that ministry, and, and here's the question that came up. Should we focus on live streaming our church service? Better said, should we invest in doing this, especially considering the command in, the command in Scripture to physically gather? Now, we must ask whether it fits our philosophy of ministry, and we've communicated the pillars of our philosophy of ministry over the years, as you know, because we want those to be second nature to us. We want it to be second nature for us to understand and apply our philosophy of ministry. Therefore, when we evaluate any ministry in the church, I don't, it doesn't matter which ministry in the church, we must ask the following questions. We must ask, does it glorify God? Does it highlight the exposition of Scripture? Does it equip the saints? Does it lead to evangelism? And I would add a couple of things, actually three things. Is it commanded by Scripture? Which if it is commanded by Scripture, by the way, it would fulfill those others, right? Is the ministry wise considering our current situation and resources? Are there more critical ministries that deserve our time and our energy? Let me say that not every worthwhile ministry will check every box at least directly. For example, we're here in just a few minutes, we're going to have church lunch, but that doesn't highlight the exposition of Scripture directly anyway. Now, it may in some ways because we can actually come together and talk about it. I mean, hopefully you guys are talking about uh, the, when you have fellowship, part of the fellowship time is talking about the, the Word of God and, what, and, and even the preaching, but it, but it doesn't directly highlight Scripture. So let me give you my thought process as we ask these sorts of questions. First, we must be able to answer the, the first question, does it glorify God? And we must be able to answer that in the affirmative before we can seriously consider any ministry. We can't move forward with ministries that do not help us better understand, worship, and proclaim the one true God. Uh, we should recognize that most normal activities, though, can and should be to, done to God's glory. Yet, an activity may be glorifying to God and still not be something we want to do. For example, we could... We could start a lending institution if we, if we wanted to, that based on godly and wise principles. That would, be, that would be God glorifying. But we have to ask the rest of those questions to ensure that doing so fits with our philosophy of ministry. Even if we find that a potential ministry fits, we need to ask the final question, is it wise to do it considering our current situation and resources? Using our example, it would be pretty clear that while a Christ-centered lending institution, as an example, is a good thing, we don't have the resources to invest in something like that, right? So we wouldn't do it. It's easy to see that we have other priorities that are more critical. Now, going back to the question of live streaming, we need to ask the question, does it glorify God? Well, the answer is yes, as long as we're focused on expositing God's Word, which, by the way, is the second question we ask. The next question we need to ask is, does it equip the saints? Well, the answer is yes. We have some saints, even today, uh, Paul Humplett's not here, and and we have um, 
Also, we have Miss Helene that's not here. They're not able to join us because they're, they're sick or they're, there's something going on in their life. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Kyle and Carrie are not here because they just had a baby. Then the live stream gives them the ability to watch during those times. We've also had people tune in to watch us for several months without attending in, per, in, in uh, person. Uh, so, uh, Dave Armstrong and, and Debbie, they, 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 Deborah Armstrong, they, they fit that. And in time, some of these, just like I said, some of these have joined us. So the next question is, does it lead to evangelism? Well, I believe that's the most profound part of this and really what I want to get to. The answer is yes. We've had unbelievers watch our live stream and use our materials online. You probably didn't know that we're regularly, regularly getting requests. I get these every week from people around the globe, literally. Just this past week, I received an email from a man in Kenya. I have really no way of knowing how, how you know, legitimate this is at this point, but I'll give, you the, I'll give you an example. He says this, Hello, I'm from a remote village in Kenya. I pastor a local church, Lakeside Christ Church, where besides teaching the Word of God, I also minister in our neighborhoods and rural communities, reaching out to them, spreading the Word and the love of Jesus Christ. I have come across so many challenges with both the young and old, being lost in consumption of alcohol and drugs, poverty-stricken families, children and young adults who are losing their bright futures. These are people who God loves, and if they can be counseled, mentored, and discipled so that they can be able to reach their potential and shape their lives, families, and have a future full hope in God. Then Then he says this, I've had the pleasure to read about you online, and I humbly request that if we can partner with you so we can reach we can reach the gospel or teach the gospel to these communities in the areas that our good Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth had called and ordained you to do in his body. We are so many branches performing different callings, but of the same body, the tree of life, Jesus Christ. Also, if you'd be interested in training pastors in biblical foundations and how to interpret Bible verses and relay it to to their congregations, that would be our number one priority as many of the local pastors here don't even have basic Bible studies. It would also be our pleasure to organize for you a crusade in our communities for soul winning. I would like this opportunity to cordially invite you to visit us one day in Kenya and have the first-hand experience by yourself. It's been joyful to read about you and the work God has designed you to fulfill. And that's from a, a pastor in Kenya. Now, I, that's, that was sent to my direct email. Again, I don't know anything about him other than what I just read and what I just read to you. Keith and I actually have a mutual friend in India that we attended seminary with. He wrote the following email to me last or a week or so ago. He says, Dear Brother Brandon, I just want you to know that if you're aware of any Christian mission organizations who can help in India to get a ground to use for crusades, tent gospel meetings of 50,000 people, a youth retreat to accommodate 2,000 young people, a general retreat to accommodate 1,000 believers, Scripture Union Fellowship meeting for about 5,000 believers. All these events are conducted by my grandfather and father for the past 79 years. They use public Christian ground till now, but from next year the ground will not be available anymore as the government took it for its use. Acts Bible Church, where I'm serving as pastor, works under the umbrella of this Believer's Prayer Fellowship Ministry. I'm the third generation serving in my dad's ministry, and I'm praying and let seminary friends know of this ministry need. My dad's ministry uh, has raised financial support for this, but they're falling short. 
And I humbly request you to pray for this need. If you know of any Christian organizations who would consider to come if possible and see the ministry, this need, and help us out, it would be much appreciated. Thank you. And that's just two examples of several that I get. They're starting to come really literally on a weekly basis of what's going on around the globe and and what's happening. And I I would say that that God is using this church, Grace Bible Church, in profound ways. And I'm convinced that He's using us in ways that we don't even know about. At least part of that, a large part of that has been through our online ministry along with the connections that we have throughout uh, around this city, throughout the nation and the world. Even today, we're recognizing and celebrating our graduates. Did you know that we sit in a city with an amazing opportunity to spread the good news of Jesus Christ? Literally, what you have to recognize is that the world comes to our doorstep every year. Literally. The entire nation, people from everywhere in this nation and the entire world come to our doorstep every year. And we get the opportunity to preach the gospel literally to the world right here in this room. Borrowing from the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, the word of the Lord is sounding forth from you, not only in Gainesville and Alachua County, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Of course, I'm, I'm borrowing the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, but the point is true that the Lord Jesus is using you more than you know. And I want to encourage you to be praying for these ministries and be praying for the Word of the Lord to sound forth. Well, today we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew entitled, The King and His Glory. We have arrived at a transition in the text. Today we will see a description of Jesus' Galilean ministry as we embark on a study of Genesis chapters 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. In John chapter 4, we've seen that Jesus was traveling to Galilee through Samaria. That John chapter 4 took place just before the Lord Jesus arrived in Galilee to to begin His ministry there. You may recall that Jesus was speaking in John chapter 4 with a woman at the well. In in His conversation with her, He declared, her, declared to her that He was in fact the Messiah. After this, that's in John 24, 26. After this, she went back to the city and told everyone about this encounter. According to John, they heard the woman and went out to see for themselves. Just listen to the following verses. This is Jesus talking. Do, not say yet, there, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. I've always loved the picture here. I believe Jesus looked up and He saw the Samaritan woman and the people from the city. They were coming up to Him and and the disciples. They were looking like a ripened harvest ready to be gathered. They were literally white for harvest. In the the words of John MacArthur, he says, their white clothing seen above the growing grain may have looked like white heads on the stalks. Stocks, an indication of readiness for harvest. Ultimately, here's what I want you to see. Ultimately, the testimony of that Sumerian woman, through the testimony of that Sumerian woman, many came to know the Lord Jesus. Many came to know. Beloved, I believe that we're on the precipice of a great harvest in our world today. I truly do. I'm praying that we will see a harvest unlike anything we've seen in the past century. 
I believe the bankruptcy of this current world system will become more and more obvious. And many will cry out to the Lord. Even now, even as we sit here today, many are crying out for the Lord. And as the Lord approached Galilee from Samaria, I'm convinced that He was looking forward to a great harvest of souls. And I'm convinced that that great harvest continues to this day and will continue in the future as we're faithful to preach the Gospel. Well, let's dive in as we see it, how, how it all started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. We praise You. <clears throat> we pray that we would be part of that great harvest. That, Lord, You have chosen to save Your people so that we may proclaim Your excellencies. Father, I pray that You would use this little church I pray that You would use Grace Bible Church. I pray that You would use us in mighty ways. Lord, in ways that we can't even understand even now. And I pray that You would continue to encourage us. That You would continue to encourage us to, to keep going forward. That when we get tired, that we would mount up on eagle's wings. That we would just trust in Your sovereignty. And that You would guide us. And that You would keep us. Pray this morning for the sermon. Pray this morning for the, the communion time. Let's pray that you would be glorified by both. In Christ's name, amen. Now before we dive into our text this morning, I want to remind you of Matthew's theme, Jesus is the King. And if He is the King, we know that every king has a kingdom, do we not? So the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a major theme throughout Matthew. Now we see these themes, the, the King... The, the Messiah, the King, from the opening line of Matthew. In and, and Matthew 1.1, he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. The Son of David. Now Matthew says, Jesus is the Son of David, King David. This title clearly declares that Jesus has the right to sit on the throne of King David. Now here's something interesting. You see, Matthew wrote his Gospel in the ensuing years after Jesus died on the cross and ascended into heaven. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus had no children. I don't care what book you might read that says He did. He didn't. I'm talking about physical children. He didn't bear physical children through any, any wife. Therefore, if Jesus was the rightful heir, just as Matthew asserts, and I believe then there's no one else qualified to sit on King David's throne. It ended with him. In other words, if Jesus is not the king, there is no king. And we had no hope. But that's Matthew's point. Jesus died, 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 but he rose from the dead, and he ascended on high, and he is in fact the true king. Now I want you to notice that Matthew carries this theme the king or the kingdom through the first four chapters. Look at Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' connection to King David by mentioning him several times. He is mentioned, that is King David, in Matthew 1, 1. He is mentioned in Matthew 1, 6. And he is mentioned in Matthew 1, 17. Now in Matthew 2, the Magi, Magi arrived in Jerusalem from the east saying, Where is he who has been born what? King. King of the Jews. In, Ma in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, when in, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea 
saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You see, we can, we can think all we want to about the devil, but I know one thing about him. He understood that Jesus was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So he tried to and failed to attempt him in his humanity to short-circuit the Father's plan to declare him the one true king of the world. Look down at 4.17, Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's the same message that John preached, and his Matthew signal that the baton had been passed from John to Jesus. Now this brings us to our text in Matthew 4, 23-25. Now let's read the text before we jump into our outline. In Matthew 4, 23, Matthew writes, And Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And, he healed them. and large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. In Matthew 4, 23-25, in Matthew 4, 23-25, Matthew gives three powerful descriptions of the king's Galilean ministry. Matthew wants you to consider, first, the king's profound te- preaching and teaching. Second, He wants you to consider His powerful healing. And third, He wants you to consider His prolific following. Now first, let's look at Matthew wants you to consider the King's profound preaching and teaching. Now what I want you to see is that King Jesus' ministry was visible throughout the region and beyond. Look Look at your Bible in 423. And Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. Now we have described Galilee in previous sermons, but I want to remind you of the geography of this area. If you look at a map, or if you've been to Israel, the the region was located in the northern part of the land of Israel. The region is bordered on the west by the Mediterranean Sea, and on the east by the Sea of Galilee and the upper Jordan Valley. The main takeaway is that Jesus started, started his ministry away from Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem to the south was the religious center of Israel, where the temple was located. The religious elite were actually located there. Now, Galilee itself was more rural than Jerusalem. It had the fertile Jezreel Valley and the productive Sea of Galilee. That, excuse me. Therefore, agriculture and fishing were the main occupations. The, the people were a mix of Jews and Gentiles. They were definitely more receptive of Jesus' ministry than the stuffy religious elite in Judea who would ultimately reject him and send him to the cross. Now the verb translated was going about has the idea of a repeated and continuous action. Said another way, throughout the duration of his Galilean ministry, Jesus continually went about teaching and preaching. Now this region that we're talking about was relatively small 
even for those days. So travel was not, relatively not, that is, too difficult. So as, as Jesus moved about, he would have been exposed to many of the people in that region. And he became a public curiosity for his amazing teaching along with his amazing works. If you look at Matthew 7, 28 and 29, after he taught the Sermon on the Mount, which actually would have happened just north of the Sea of Galilee, it says, now when it happened, when he had finished these words, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, I want you to understand that Matthew then, what happens in this section from Matthew 5 through 9, Matthew then summarizes the entire Galilean ministry in these verses, Matthew 4, 23 through 25, which is described then in Matthew 5 through 9. This section, Matthew 5 through 9, breaks down into two sections. We will study his message or his words in Matthew 5 through 7, and then we'll see his miraculous works in Matthew 7 through 9. Now, it's very important to see that we have him teaching, and then we have his miraculous works. And we'll see the reason why in a moment. According to the text, Jesus was going throughout the region, and look back at your text, he was going throughout the region, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So what first I want you to notice then that Jesus' ministry was focused on the Jewish synagogues. This is, an interesting, this is interesting considering the, the region was home to many Gentiles. The Jews used the synagogues as their primary place of worship, study, fellowship, and even judicial proceedings. The, the synagogue was also a school for the boys. They were able to learn to read and write and perform arithmetic. The boys also began to study the Talmud while it was a place of study, to study theology as they grew to be men. By the time of Jesus and the apostles, the temple remained the central focus of Judaism. But the synagogue had become a central place of worship for many Jews because they, they were able to go to the synagogue and the synagogue was more local. As such, it was the most important institution in Jewish life, especially for those in regions outside of Jerusalem. You see, their lives revolved around synagogue activities. And usually synagogues occupied the most prominent place in town, such as the highest hill or on the bank of a river. And many times they had, they had something of like a, a church steeple so that they were very visible. The, these things made them stand out from their surroundings. And so therefore, Jewish life revolved around the synagogue. And Jewish life also revolved around Sabbath day. The, this time began on Friday at sundown and ended on Saturday. On, on the Sabbath, they religiously read from the Torah, that, that is the law, along with the prophets. And they would also pray and sing. And, and, and these elements of worship were followed by someone expounding upon a text of Scripture. Many times they would ask a visiting dignitary or teacher uh, to uh, explain the scriptures, and that we see this with Jesus and and with Paul, and in Luke four sixteen through twenty one, specifically four sixteen, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, 
and it was as his custom, he entered the synagogue and he stood up to read. So he was asked to read uh, the scripture because he was visiting the synagogue. And in Acts 13, 14 through 16, uh, Paul re- arrived in Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day and they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And according to verse 16, Paul stood up. And, and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God. And, and so the point is, is that he was invited, according to verse 15, uh, to give an exhortation to the people from the scriptures. So as you can tell, the synagogue was the social and theological center for the Jewish life. Therefore, it was devastating to be kicked out of the synagogue. That is to be disfellowshipped or excommunicated. Ultimately, this is what happened to Christ followers. When they became Christ followers, they they effectively left Judaism and they were uh, separated, in many cases, from the synagogue. The the letter of James actually describes the difficulties awaiting those who chose to follow Christ and leave the synagogue. James 2 describes, in in James 2, 15-16, James describes a brother or a sister without clothing and in need of daily food. The reason they were without clothing and in need of daily food is because they've been separated from uh, the life of uh, the, the regular Jew, and they didn't have that support system. And so when that person came uh, to, be, to ask to be helped by the church, uh, some were saying, go in peace and be warmed and be filled. And they didn't give them what was necessary because they didn't, wanna, they didn't want that separation as well. And so that was powerful. To be separated from the synagogue was, was a powerful uh, deterrent uh, to follow Christ. And James 5 describes how the rich actually took advantage of them and, and those who had been kicked out of fellowship. And it's this potential for disfellowship that was too difficult to consider for many who had heard the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews warned that anybody considering leaving Jesus and returning to Judaism, that it was impossible to renew them to repentance after having fallen away. That's Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. So what I'm trying to get you to understand is that, that the synagogue was such a huge part of the Jewish life. And it was just this huge deal, this big deal for the Jew to leave the synagogue and a bigger problem for those calling themselves Christians to denounce Christ and return to the synagogue. And that was true again because the synagogue was the center of Jewish life. And that's the reason why Jesus focused on the synagogues. That's why he went to the synagogues because he knew that's where he was going to be heard. Going back to your text in Matthew 4.23, what was he doing? Well, he was teaching in their synagogues. I want you to notice then that the, the King Jesus' ministry was based on profound teaching. And that's why Matthew gives, uh, from Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount is all the content of his preaching. That's why Matthew gives so much territory to, in, in his gospel to Jesus' words because he wants us to understand his words. And, and, and what we need to recognize is clearly those who heard Jesus' teaching knew and understood that it was profound. Even if they didn't agree with it, they understood it was profound. It was unlike anything that they had ever heard. Matthew 5-7, through again, contains the Sermon on the Mount, which I would argue is some of the most profound, if not the most profound wisdom ever produced. It is the, the most profound wisdom ever produced because it came from the mouth of our Lord. Matthew tells us that when the crowds heard his teaching, they were absolutely astonished. They were absolutely astonished. We saw that in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. 
The people understood that Jesus knew what he was talking about. But that shouldn't surprise us, should it? John tells us that Jesus, in John 1.14, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the world, in John 21.25, the world itself couldn't contain the books to record all that he did and said. I love Jesus' words in John 14.10. Jesus' authority came from the Father because his words came from the Father. Listen to this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak for myself, but the Father abiding in me does His works. In other words, Jesus' teaching was profound. It was profound because His teaching came directly from heaven. came directly from the Father. Dennis Prager, a Jewish, a modern Jewish political conservative commentator, normally gives his cultural wisdom based on a Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. I actually listened and have found him to be helpful. But over the past couple of weeks, he came out and said, this is his quote, if pornography is a substitute for one's wife, it's awful. Then he said this, if it's a substitute for adultery, it's not awful. End quote. This, my friends, is called worldly wisdom. It's called worldly wisdom. And according to James, that type of wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. But Jesus' wisdom came from above because it was first pure, peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting and without hypocrisy. And it was different. And everybody that heard Him knew it was different. And when you read it, when you read His words, you know it's different. It's different than what the world produced. Men like Dennis Prager are grasping for worldly wisdom because they don't have true wisdom. They don't have true wisdom. So they say dumb things like that. Beloved, those who listen to Jesus' words could tell the difference. And as you read God's Word, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you will be able to discern the truth. You will be able to discern that it's God's Word that you're reading because it's wisdom from above. I love Paul's words in Romans. Oh, by the way, those who don't know the Lord, when they read Scripture, you know, they don't get it. Well, there's a reason for that. That which is below can't understand that which is from above. As you read God's Word, you will be able to discern the truth if you know Him. I love Paul's words in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. You can discern, discern the truth of God's Word and apply it to your life as you're being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And He's using your, His Word to transform you so that you wouldn't, to renew your mind so that you wouldn't be conformed to this world. Church, the king's ministry was based on profound teaching and it was characterized by kingdom preaching. Kingdom preaching. Look, at, look back at your text in 423 that he was teaching in their synagogues and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was preaching the gospel. He was proclaiming the good news that the king had arrived, that he had arrived and, and, and that the king had come with a taste of his kingdom. 
Now, some, people, some Christians believe that he inaugurated his kingdom on earth through his life, death, and his resurrection and ascension, and he's now ruling from the throne, and his, his rule extends to the earth through the church. They don't see a physical kingdom where the messianic king will rule, but I don't think this fits Matthew's usage of the word kingdom or the idea of the kingdom. Personally, personally I think that there are spiritual aspects of the kingdom that, that God is ruling in the hearts of, of believers. Now, before we get to that emphasis, though, I want you to recognize that the Greek word translated preaching has the idea of proclaiming. Here's the pattern. Jesus proclaimed the message. That was preaching. Then He explained the message. That was, that was teaching. That should look familiar. We continue to do the same thing. We proclaim the message of the gospel. We proclaim, we proclaim the cross. The cross of Christ, that He died on the cross, that we can be saved by His grace through faith. That throughout, throughout His ministry, He framed, Jesus framed His message around the good news of the kingdom. And Luke tells us that until the day uh, when, he, when He spoke about the day, until the day when uh, He went up to be with the Lord, to be with God on, the, at, at, on His throne, until that day He was taken up to heaven, and He was speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. In the words of John MacArthur, he never allowed himself to be sidetracked into economics, social issues, politics, or personal disputes. His teaching and his preaching focused entirely on expounding God's Word and proclaiming God's kingdom, a sound pattern for every faithful messenger of the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel, and then we are to explain it. That's what we do. That's all we do, is proclaim the gospel Proclaim the good news, and then we teach it. We explain it. We exposit it. Ultimately, the, the gospel is the good news that you can, in fact, be a part of God's kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even right now, you can call out to Him, and He will hear your sincere cry. He will save you by His grace through faith if you cry out to Him, if you genuinely believe. And if you do so, He will rescue you from the authority of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of the Son, of His Son, the Son of His love, that is, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 13-14. But once you become a part of the kingdom, then it's our responsibility as the church to teach you. And it's the same pattern that we see in Christ. Well, we've considered the king's profound preaching and teaching. Next, Matthew wants to consider the king's powerful healing. His powerful healing. Look at your text in Matthew 4.23. He was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Let me say up front, we're not going to go too deep into the debates about the nature of healing in the church age, but I will say this. I will only say that all healing ultimately comes from God. Let me say that again. All healing ultimately comes from God. The so-called natural ability for your body to heal comes from God. In other words, I believe that all healing is ultimately supernatural. That doctors can learn natural processes, 
But ultimately, the, the ability for the, for the body to heal is ultimately a supernatural ability. And I believe James recognized that truth. In James 5, 14, he commanded, James commanded the elders of the church to pray over those who were sick. Listen to the promise, this promise in, in James 5, 15. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. You see, God may choose to heal them physically. He can do that. Don't ever forget, he can do that. Or he may choose, in his sovereignty, and this is where it gets hard, he may choose to allow sickness and disease to run its course. But here's what we have to recognize. Both, whether he heals or whether he allows it to run its course, both are for his glory. I remind you of James 1, 2 through 4. You see, James 5, he wrote about the pray, praying for the sick. And James 1, through, 1, 2 through 4, he says, Consider it, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. You know what those various trials are? Well, at least some of it could be sickness, disease, maladies. But you know what he uses it for? Knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Nothing. The, the, the person who is, who is struggling, who depends upon God, is being, is being sanctified through uh, the, the trial. He may choose for you to go through the trial of sickness for His glory and your good. And I find it interesting that in James 5.15 it says, The prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Does that mean he's, the person is going to be healed? Not necessarily. Not in this life necessarily. I think that's why it, it, there's so much debate as to what that really means. Does that mean he's going to save them physically and raise them up physically? Or is it going to be spiritually? Yes. I think it can, I think it can be both. And then he, then he says, if he's committed sin, they will be for, sins, they will be forgiven him. He may allow the sickness to run its course for his purpose, but he is faithful either way to save the sinner and raise him up. But here's the key. If he humbly, he or she humbly seeks the Lord, that's the key. I believe God will answer the prayers for and from the sinner who humbly calls on the Lord and asks Him for healing. But I believe ultimately this, the emphasis is more spiritual than physical. And I think that's the point of James 1, 2 through 4. You see, God, can, God provides for spiritual as well as physical healing. One way or the other, God is faithful to respond to the humble request of His saints. I love the words of Zephaniah 2.3. Seek Yahweh, all you humble of the earth who have worked His justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. You see, we need to be humble. When we're asking the Lord, to, if, if we're going through a problem, uh, we, if we need to be healed physically, and we, uh, we're, we're seeking the Lord humbly, uh, part of that humility is understanding that He may allow that sickness to progress, even if we ask Him, even if we ask him uh, to heal us. But He does so for His purposes and His glory, and ultimately for our good. Having said all that, 
I do believe the actual gift of healing as witnessed with Jesus and his apostles is limited to special times. The miracles, these miracles demonstrate God's power and they authenticate his message for his purposes. I believe he may choose to use these types of miracles, the miracles of healings and casting out demons and other things according to his sovereign will. He may choose to use those things. And, and we may also see another out. I, th- I believe that we're going to see another outpouring of God's miracles as we end the, the near, near the end of this age. But for now, I want you to notice that Jesus was healing every kind of disease and every kind of weak, weak sickness among the people. You get the point. There was nothing that was limited. Nothing. Literally, he was able to heal everything. Can you imagine that power? Let me say it a different way. There was absolutely no limit to the power of Jesus to heal. And because of that great power, look back at your text. News about him spread throughout all Syria. Oh, by the way, it's not just the healing. It was the teaching as well and the preaching. That, that this is the news that spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Now you can understand the various diseases and, and, and pains as being a general heading, but Matthew specifically mentions, mentions three types of afflictions. He, you know, Jesus healed afflictions caused by demonic powers and authorities. He see. Jesus had the divine power to cast out demons and to heal those who were afflicted by them. They they could not resist Him. Even His presence caused them great pain and consternation. I I love Matthew 8, 29, And behold, they, this is the demons, cried out saying, "What What have we to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, He had power over the demonic world. He also healed epileptics. The the Greek word there could be translated lunatic. This this word both in the English and the Greek means moonstruck. The mentally ill have been known as those who are under the influence of the moon. In our own culture, we've all heard that a moon, a full moon, brings out the mentally unstable. But Matthew was probably referring specifically to epilepsy, which is a disorder of the central nervous system. I'm I'm slowly working through a biography about George Washington by Ron Chernow. And in it, Chernow describes Washington's stepdaughter who was afflicted by epilepsy. And there was absolutely nothing they could do. It was horrifying because they didn't know what it was. And they, they, they didn't know if it was spiritual or if it was mental or if it was physical. They had no idea. It was horribly crippling and, and there was nothing they could do. But Jesus had the power to heal these disorders. Absolutely unprecedented. Absolutely unprecedented. We've never seen anything like that here in modern times. He also healed paralytics. Of course, this term describes those with physical handicaps, including the blind, the deaf, and those who could not walk or talk. In the words of John MacArthur, the three terms that Matthew uses characterize the three broad areas of man's afflictions, the spiritual the mental, nervous, and the physical. Jesus was able to overcome whatever evil afflicted those who came to Him. Uh, the, the earthly aspect of His kingdom will have no place 
for anything harmly, any harmful, anything wicked, anything less than perfect wholeness and, and perfect goodness. One day, the, on that day, the deaf shall hear, the eyes of the blind shall see, the afflicted shall also increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel, end quote. Personally, this may sound incredible to you, but Personally, I believe that if he continued to heal unabated by the resistance of evil men empowered by satanic forces, he would have eradicated every disease and every sickness. I, I, I personally believe that because I think we're going to see that in the Millennial Kingdom. I think that's what we're going to see in the Millennial Kingdom. Is literally, he will heal everything. You see, healing people at that level is unprecedented. Never seen before and never seen since. Earlier, earlier I said, I believe the, the Scriptures teach a physical kingdom where the Messiah will rule upon the earth. And I believe that Jesus' earthly ministry gave a, a taste of that coming kingdom. In the words of B.B. Warfield, when our Lord came down to earth, He drew heaven with Him. The signs which accompanied His ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which He brought from heaven, which is His home. The number of miracles which he, which he wrought may, have eas- may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. One touch of the hem of his garment that he wore could heal whole countries of their pain. One touch of his hand could restore life. End quote. That may sound like he's overstating it, but I don't think so. Such is the power of the one that we serve. I hope you believe that. I will say that any attempt by charlatans, and I call them charlatans, to replicate Jesus' healing ministries will fall infinitely short. That's why these guys that claim the gift of healing never show up in the cancer unit. Have you ever noticed that? Again, all healing comes from God. I, I believe all healing is supernatural. But we're talking about something different here. Only he and those commissioned directly by him, the apostles, could do uh, what what we see described in the Gospels and in Acts. And I believe in the future Christ will come back and he will heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And I believe his righteous rule will fill the earth with his power and he will eradicate everything that stands against him. No one will suffer No one will be possessed by demons, and Satan's power will be rendered powerless. I believe that's the nature of the kingdom that is to come. Church, his earthly ministry gave a glimpse of the future hope that we have in Christ. Ultimately, when all is said and done, he will wipe away, this is Revelation 21, 4 and 5, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. In the meantime, as we look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the Lord, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we, are, we stand here and we resist the devil, we are firm in our faith, and we know that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among our brothers and sisters throughout this world. 
And after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, and confirm, and ground us. That is through his power and his power alone. Beloved, those are not my words. If you didn't pick it up, pick up on it. Those are the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 9-10. Why do you think the New Testament talks so much about suffering? Why? Because we suffer in this world. And he knew we needed that encouragement. The question is, why do we suffer when God has the power to heal? You see, we will suffer in this present world. Paul even said that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And oh, by the way, part of that persecution is going to be physical. But I love Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10, which is close to the end of his life. He says, but you, Timothy, follow my teaching and conduct and purpose and faith and patience, love, persecution, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some of us, some of us, but there's going to be the few that get that that kind of break free from that. That's not what's going to happen. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will suffer infirmities. We will be inflicted, afflicted. Listen to the words of Paul in Second Corinthians four eight through ten. In every way afflicted, but not crushed perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Now he's talking about the apostles there, but I think it affects and this applies to every Christian who wants to follow Christ, who wants to honor Him, who wants to live for Him. Beloved, we suffer as Christians in this present age, looking forward with great anticipation to the coming of our Lord Jesus who will set us free. And we're thankful that if God chooses to comfort us by healing us in the midst of this great suffering, but we recognize that He may choose for us to suffer a little while to manifest His glory in us. And as we suffer, we learn to suffer well. And through our suffering, we learn to be comforted with a comfort that can only come from him and oh by the way we learn how to comfort others when they're suffering and it is for God's glory and ultimately I think that Matthew wrote his gospel to a church about to endure great persecution and suffering for the, the sake of the king. And he wanted them to place their hope in God who alone can be trusted. He wanted them to consider that he is the only one who can, uh, who, who can heal their infirmities. He wanted the, them to consider that one day he would return and he would wipe away their tears. Are you suffering? Are you hurting? Look to Christ. Look to Christ who alone can comfort your heart in your time of need. Beloved, I know it is true. I know it is true. I have experienced it personally. I have experienced it personally. I have suffered 
And I've been able to look to my Lord who alone can get me through. And I can tell you there were times of despair that I didn't want to go on, but only the Lord was able to make it, make it happen. You see, Jesus' miracles authenticated his teaching and preaching. The miracles that he did, the miracles that we see that Matthew talks about in Matthew 4, 23-25, those miracles authenticated his uh, profound teaching. And he was teaching one, him, them as one who had authority, and, and the, the miracle showed that he truly was from God. Now look, for now, look back at your text. In Matthew 4.25, where Matthew wants us to consider the king's prolific following. <clears throat> Look at 4.25. And the large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Earlier I mentioned in my Earlier comments, I mentioned the great harvest of souls that started in Jesus' day and continues to now. Many came to be healed and to hear Jesus preach, teach, and teach and proclaim the kingdom. As I said, people recognized the power of his words and they sensed that he was teaching them with the authority of heaven with, behind them. Many came to know the Lord through his ministry and the ministry of the apostles. Many have come to know him through, uh, through the ministry uh, during church age. And as I've said, I believe there will be a great harvest in the future from all over this world. And in and, and Galilee, they came from all around because they wanted to see Jesus. They even came from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And many of them believed and were saved. Yet sadly... For the vast majority, he was a mere curiosity. This is going to sound familiar. He was a means of healing. He was a means of healing. They, they listened. They watched. They even received healing. Yet they did not believe. And as you sit here today, as you sit here today, the question is, are you only here for what God can do for you now? Do you think that God can add to your life and, and that you will receive health and wealth and happiness because He's, he's there? You, he, he can, you can add Him to your life and you can receive health and wealth and happiness because He's there? Sadly wrong. Those who wish to follow Jesus must take up the cross and follow Him. Perhaps you're here to make someone else happy. If so, you're tragically missing the entire point, just like those who followed him, those people following him in Galilee. They just wanted, he was just a mere curiosity. Right now, I want you to consider your reason for being here. I want you to truly consider it. Do you, do you truly believe? Do you believe that He and only He can save your eternal soul? Are you willing to follow Him no matter what? You know, if you're here today and you're unbelieving, you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior. I beg you, don't let another moment go by. Don't let another, don't let another moment go by. I beg you, believe in Him. 
Turn to Him in saving faith. And oh, by the way, I love the words of A.W. Tozer. He says, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Look to Him. He alone can save you. Paul tells us in Romans 9 through 10, 10, 9 through 10, he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe from in your hearts. That's truly believe. That's true faith. That, that God raised Him from the dead. If you confess with your mouth, He's Lord. Oh, by the way, that comes with a willingness to suffer for Him. Then he goes on to say, for with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, I have sometimes felt willing to go to the gates of hell to save a soul. But the Redeemer went further. He suffered the wrath of God for souls. End quote. He suffered the Father's wrath on sin so that you might not have to. If you're in Christ, He took upon Himself the Father's wrath in your place, in your stead, so that if you're in Him, you will be saved. Here in just a moment, we're going to, going to observe communion together. So I want you to take a few moments just to consider what Christ has accomplished. I quote it quite often because I love Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'm going to start in verse 20. He says, so then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That is to the unbeliever. Those who are not reconciled. Those who find themselves outside of Christ. Who haven't believed. But then he gives the gospel in one succinct sentence. One brief sentence, it says, He made Him who knew no sin. You see, we believe that Christ is perfect. That Christ walked this earth. He had no sin. No sin. He knew no sin. He had no sin in Him. But God the Father made Him who knew no sin to be sin. That's not, that doesn't mean he became sin, or that he, that he became a sinner, that is. What that means is that he became sin on our, on our behalf. He became uh, the, the object of God's wrath, the Father's wrath. He laid sin upon him, and he poured out his wrath on him. But it's the great exchange. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. All of His works, perfect, righteous works, 
our, our accreditor accounted to us in Him. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But by His grace, through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. So that none of us can boast. You or I, either one, may boast. Thinking, oh Lord, this is what I've done. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Him, you're going to stand in front of Him with your meager works. And you're going to say, Lord, are they good enough? And He's going to say, no, be away from me. Be gone. But if you stand before Him in Christ, Christ is what He sees. And you will stand redeemed. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we take this opportunity to remember what Christ has done, what He's accomplished in His death on the cross, His burial, resurrection, rising from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, having crushed the head of the serpent, Ascended to the Father, who where He's now interceding for us. He's interceding for you and me if we are in Him. So if you're in Him today, I invite you to partake. I invite you to meditate on the truths that have been presented this morning. The truths of Scripture. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. And only in Him may you find salvation. And if you're here today and you don't know Him, I would just ask that you would let the cup pass and that you would not let another day go by. Another moment. Another moment. You're not promised. You're not promised to see tomorrow. You're not. Don't, don't take that, you know, I'll just do it later. Don't do that. Don't do that. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. So take a moment. I'm going to ask the, the music team to come up, the worship team that is, to come up and lead us in a, in a song. But we're going to give you a few moments here to meditate. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to partake with us. you are struggling and in sin, confess it. Confess. Take this opportunity. Confess. That's, I mean, he, I love the words of John. Such a, a great truth for us to, to think about when we're, as we're going through communion, as we're considering these certain things. 1 John 1, 1.9 he says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're in unconfessed sin, you're a believer and you're in unconfessed sin, don't partake in an unworthy manner. Confess. That's all it takes. You don't have to wait. 
Now, do it. I'm going to give you a few moments. As Jevin is playing.